bring everybody. <laughs> some of you are new. <clears throat> some of you have been here a number of years, and I know there's a question about why have I been back here 12 years. I think that's a legitimate question. I've been thinking on that. And I thought of there's a, really four reasons, I think, that explain why Winston has asked me back four years. First is because I'm a very cheap speaker. <laughs> I pay my own airplane, pay my own way, and I also have to pay an honorarium to Winston to have me. <laughs> so I'm really not a cheap speaker. I'm actually a profitable speaker for me. <laughs> the second reason is, and, and as you notice, Winston's been around. You see Ford and Bob Foster and, and Walt Henderson, those guys. Those are high-quality guys, and Winston uses me for his self-esteem. It's nice to have someone inferior with him, <clears throat> and he really gets, he kind of revs up on me and takes advantage of me for the weekend, and kind of really feels good. It carries him for months, because uh, I'm with a few guys that's doing worse in business than he is right now. <laughs> they only got the, the third reason is because, as you will hear when I get through speaking, I really will not speak with a great deal of clarity, and I leave a lot of confusion behind, and he uses that as cannon fodder to teach his Bible study on for a year. <laughs> but the fourth and the, probably the most significant reason is that uh, I kiss his ring. <laughs> so you've got to put up with me for one more year, guys. A lot of you always ask me, uh, how has it been spiritually for the year? Let me say to you, I've had the privilege of being in Walt with Walt in a Bible study over the year, and that's always a, an, an intriguing thing that I could speak about for hours. I, it's so much fun to sit in a session with somebody that's so completely superior in his thinking to you. But One of the major things we studied this year was election. And my application is election. I've changed my witness now. I say, this may not apply to you. <laughs> I'll give you some uh, Atlanta humor. Uh, there's an Israeli and an Iraqian talking. And the Iraqian says to the Israeli, We are the greatest nation in the world. We are the greatest technologist in the world. In the Iranian war, we had a guy that had his leg blown completely off. And the doctor sewed the leg back on. We found it, and the doctor sewed the leg back on. And today, he's a world-class marathon runner. And the Israelite thought for a moment, he says, yeah, that's, that's good, but let me tell you, he says, when during one of our wars, we had a guy had his arm blown completely off. And we found it, but he was, you couldn't redeem it, so we made a, a bionic arm for him. And today, he's a great neurosurgeon. Now, I reckon such and says, oh, yeah, yeah. We had a guy now, Randy Warren, had his head blown totally off. We didn't find the head for two days. We sewed it back on, and today he's our president. <laughs> <clears throat> you 
it's a pleasure to be with you, and I thank you for the time, and it's a, really a treat for me. I, I mean that sincerely. It's a real honor to be with you guys. I look forward to it every year. My family looks forward to it. Uh, they know I get all revved up to come up here, and it's a, an exciting time for me. And, John, I thoroughly always enjoy your devotionals, and they always speak to me. And TJ, you're a super blessing to this old dog, and I appreciate your singing. I really do. Tom, the years you've done recording and, uh, and the work you put in, it's just fantastic. It's just a well-executed, loving, caring seminar, and it's just fun to be with you guys. And I'm going to spend the uh, next period of time with you talking about a subject that's been on my mind for years, but was heightened last year when Walt spoke about knowing the ways of God. It's been something that has always been on my mind and something that I have tried to understand. What is the distinction in knowing the ways of God? And I would like to take that on today, and I know I will do a very inadequate job, but I would like to stimulate and start your thinking in that quest to understand the knows of knowing the ways of God through observing the life of Jesus. That's what I want to talk about today. Knowing the ways of God through observing the life of Jesus. And I think we have many questions we could ask about that, and I'm going to just take on three or four of them today. One of them is, why is that important? Two, how do we do that? Three, what is important to God? And four, what is the character of God that we can learn from Jesus? And I may not get through all of them. We'll just go as far as we can go and enjoy what we can enjoy. And like Walt, I want to also invite any kind of question, like Ford, that you like to ask. But unlike Walt and Ford, I will not answer them, nor will I turn them over to anyone. <laughs> i got to tell you this. I invite, this is off the rock. I got invited Winston to talk to a group in Atlanta one time, and he got away with this. This is incredible. He's sitting at the front of the room. I don't know if you were, here's Winston sitting at the front of the room. Somebody asks a question, and he go. <laughs> He'd turn and talk about something else. He never answered the guy's question. I said, how do you get away with that? How does a man get away with that? So I'm going to try today if you do it on me. I had a friend of mine. Who cares? They asked him three or four questions. And just go on. The guy really felt intimidated. You know what? I actually saw him going, yeah. That guy's got a touch. I've never been able to do that. I had a friend of mine a number of years ago that was a, a consultant. And as a, uh, they, their, their business had gone well and kind of as a reward to his wife and his children, he took them to Europe. And while in Europe, he was driving one night in uh, Sweden and became very tired and turned the driving over to his wife. And he fell asleep in the passenger seat. The next time he woke up, he was in a hospital. His wife had gone to sleep at the car, run head-on into another car and killed herself and one of his sons. And he lived with his other son. His other, the one his son that lived was the one sitting right behind him. Everybody on this side of the car was killed. And I stayed with Warren a great deal during that time, chatting with him and trying to befriend him. And I asked Warren, how do you feel about God? I, I, we had gone on for some time. Oh, no, that was not my first question, but I had been with him at length. And I said, how do you feel about God with respect to this? And he said, Gail, that wasn't God's fault. That wasn't his problem. God didn't have his foot on that accelerator. God didn't have his hands on that steering wheel. God had nothing to do with that. And I walked away from that and said, that bothers me. If God is out of control, then where does that leave me? Now, guys, 
That plus many other stories I could tell you, it becomes incumbent upon us to understand the ways of God. Because ultimately, if we are banking our whole cookies on God, and we are, then we better know who we're dealing with and what kind of person that is. Do you know the ways of God? Is it important to know the ways of God? And the answer is, I want to tell you incredibly, yes. If we do not understand Him, we will not be able to live our life with God. And two, we will never have intimacy with God. And we'll miss two great points. And that was what you were talking about today, John, the passion for God. Let me say that all things in life lead us back to a need to either know God intimately or reject Him. All things in life, i found, lead me back to a decision. I either want to know you more intimately or I want to get you out of my life. All issues I deal with drive me back to that point. Now, as I struggle with three major issues in my life, contentment, self-denial, and servanthood. I don't know if you guys struggle. I struggle all the time with those in business. Am I content? Can I serve you? And will I be involved in self-denial? And unless I have a good view of God, I must tell you that I will reject God. Those three things are always haunting me in my dealings with my life and my relationship to my family. So what I'd like to do is talk about that. And I want to tell you I'm inadequate to the cause, so you guys get to be understanding, but hopefully we can journey some distance together. And TJ, I'd like for you to pray for me at this time as I launch off. Would you please? There's a distinction made in Psalm 103, verse 7, that said that Moses knew the ways of God, and the people of Israel knew his acts. That's the difference between a participator and a spectator. It's a difference between intimacy and observation. And when the chips, when the chips went down, Moses stayed and the others left. The difference between finishing and just running in the race is that intimacy, guys. It is incredibly important to know his ways. So I think we can answer question number one, is it important? And the answer is yes. But do we know God? Do we know his ways? And let me note four things to you. I want to say to you that most Christians I know today have no intimacy with God. And I want to suggest to you struggle about a passion for God. Got great fellowship among ourselves. Love to get around and talk about our issues. Love to rub bellies with each other. But they have no intimacy with God. Fellowship, yes. Intimacy, no. Secondly, a lot of guys today, a lot of guys claim an intimacy which goes and beyond and defies the Bible. Every moment God speaks to them. They name it, they claim it. Everywhere they turn, God's leaped out of a tree and given them another message. An intimacy which is not even in the Scriptures that God not talks about. And you wonder about the legitimacy of that. Tozer, one of the great writers, says that most people know God from inference than for real. 
Now let that one soak in. I think I told you really was on to something there. And let me say to you that if you study the masses, most of the people in the gospel never knew who Jesus was, and it was God in front of them. I was reading a book this winter on the intertestament period. It was talking about the time when Pompey had come down and captured Jerusalem. And he said, he made a, in an interesting comment, he said it was only legitimate, it was only legitimate that the Israelites believed that Jesus would be a great political and military leader because that's what they needed. It was legitimate to conclude that that's what God would be. But guys, that's not what Jesus was at all. And I want to say to you that I believe that in this room, and especially true of Gail Jackson, my relationship to God is mostly determined by my circumstance and my egocentricity rather than by the Bible. I have a problem and I say, undoubtedly, this is who God is because He can solve that problem just the way I want Him to solve it. And so my circumstance dictates who God is. Or I've got a certain quirk in my temperament, so undoubtedly God is this kind of guy. And I thought that author hit it right on the nose. Because Pompey had taken over and because the Israelites did have a problem, undoubtedly that's what God would be. But guys, when Jesus comes, he doesn't come that way at all. He doesn't even come remotely like that. Complete miscalculation. The truth is, you will know God on God's terms, not on your terms. Most of us try to define God on our circumstance and our own egocentricity. We view it from our own cultural mindset. And there's two truths that we come with. We cannot, not go, we cannot know God from extrapolation of experience or circumstance. We cannot know God from the extrapolation of circumstance or experience because God creates circumstance. Circumstance does not define God. And as my friend Warren drove down the highway, God could never have done that because that's too horrible an event. God, that's not my God. God could never have hell because God's a loving God. God could never allow that tragedy to happen because God is that kind of God. I'm sorry, God is God and you're not, and he'll define it any way he wants to. So the first truth is you cannot define God from extrapolation of experience or circumstance. Because God creates circumstance, circumstance does not define God. We cannot, the second truth is you cannot know God by timely observation. I cannot take two facts and say that is God. God is best understood in retrospect over a great period of time. I want to tell you this. I have a better grasp of God than Job did. I can read the story of Job and say, I understand why he did it, Job. Job never understood that. Joe is struggling tooth and toenail to get through the dumb event. And so you're not going to know God on the fly. It takes time to know God. Intimacy is grown with time and relationship, not with event. Time and relationship and not with event. How can we then know Jesus? How can we know God's ways? And I'm going to suggest to you, you can approach it a lot of ways, but let me suggest to you that a study of Jesus' life is the way you do it. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 14, 8. And we'll say to you that if we were to study Jesus, we would get to know God. To know Jesus is to know God. Now that is not, nothing terribly profound. 
not a show of hands, but within your own mind. How many of you really camped in the Gospels this year? You just contemplated, who is Jesus? I didn't. For a couple of three years. Just let them go by. I've already read those. I don't need to read those again. And yet the relationship to God comes out of that. To know Jesus is to know God. Through this, in with, while we're in the temporal, we can see the eternal. Let me just take you through the life of Jesus for a moment. In Jesus, in Mary's prayer, as she prays in celebration that she finds out she's pregnant, as you review it, she sees Jesus as a conqueror of the empire. She missed who he was. She didn't know anything. She stumbled around. You watch her. She's trying to grasp what's going on. And they, God gave her a direct message of who he was. The Herodians knew all about him, but didn't know him. And missed their complete opportunity to be with him. John the Baptist saw him, even declared who he was. But in the end result, he said, one more time, let me know who you are. Because before I throw my life on this deal, I'm be sure I bet on the right horse. Nicodemus sensed the reality of him, but was struggled with who he was during the whole time. The woman with the well called him a prophet, and yet she gave him the opportunity to save his life. The Nazarene saw, uh, saw him as Joseph's son. He lived among them for the years, and he was nothing more than this carpenter's son. Did not realize he was God. The bro- the, his brothers, his own blood brothers, saw him as a fake. They tried to provoke him into going up to the temple. One of the saddest parts of the, the Bible I've ever read. Fifty of the, Fifty-eight of his disciples refused to accept him on his own terms. He had 70 disciples, 58 of them. When he says, let me tell you who I am, they said, that's not who you are, we'll leave him. We don't want part of that issue. Philip didn't know, who he, didn't know he was God by the third year. Jesus had to reiterate the issue to him one more time. The Pharisees and the Sadducees saw him as Beelzebub. They saw him as trouble. They saw him as a drunk. They saw him as a sinner. They saw him as a lawbreaker. They saw the, emer- the masses saw him as an emergency ward. They saw him as a great grocery store to get goods from. Simeon and Anna realized who he was. You remember who Simeon and Anna is? Simeon and Anna in the temple. They knew they saw God. They grasped at him. Listen, look, listen to their prayers. They knew who he was dealing with. These were not spectacular people. These were not learned people. Peter vacillated back and forth. But eventually you really begin to see that Peter may have figured out who he was. But he himself loses it. The leper figured out who he was when he says, You can heal me if you want to. I know you're God. You can heal me if that's the issue. The centurion saw who he was. And let me tell you who one other person is on. The evil spirits knew who he was. Now, guys... You study the life of Jesus and you come away with the conclusion that those who looked him right square in the eye had a lot of trouble figuring out the ways of God and kept trying to define them within the context of their circumstance with the context of their culture. Very few of them ever really figured out who he was. Now, let me say to you, you can look at it and let me make you four observations of what those, about truths about those people who understood. Remember, I told you four guys really understood. One of them is, it helped not to have flesh. The evil spirits knew him. They knew exactly who they were dealing with. The minute you put flesh on it, the guys had troubles dealing with the issue. Secondly, they'd made a long-term commitment to obedience. Simeon and Anna, long-term commitment to obedience. And they knew who God was. Guys who knew who it was, the leper, 
He was a man with great needs, but no alternatives. He was at the end of the rope. He understood who God was. He grasped the issue. And they sought to know God with commitment. Now, guys, I don't know if that's a telltale sign totally, but let me suggest to you that goes through the thread. Not everybody that ran up against him understood who he was. Most of them wanted to see him as healings and as miracles and things of this nature, but those were not the things that Jesus was trying to bring to view to us. Why don't we know God's ways then? Let me suggest to you four reasons why we don't know God's ways. First is we view Christianity as a solution and not as a relationship. The reason is, is we can come to God and say, here's my problem, solve it. As opposed to the reason God is in the business of rescuing us is for the relationship. Christianity is a relationship to God, not a solution to your problem on the earth. I've been with Christ 21 years. And I want to say to you today that last year was the roughest year I ever lived. Not a single crisis, but multiple crises. Struggles tooth and toenail at different camps and different angles. Is God still God? Absolutely. Is God still the God that loved me and everything went well the year before? Exactly the same God. <clears throat> Hadn't changed an hour to guys. The minute I say, God, Christianity is a solution. Christ died on the cross to solve my problems. I have lost my relationship to God. I've lost, I'm out of focus. Christ did not die on the cross, did not die on the cross, that you may have a better marriage. He did not die on the cross that you could have a successful business. He did not die on the cross that you would have health. He did not die on the cross that you would have a great reputation. He died on the cross to absorb your sins so that you could have a relationship with the divine creator of the universe. And that's what it's about. And that's why the great commandment is a great commandment. Love the Lord thy God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. And the reason it is, is because God wants our intimacy. We want a solution, and God wants our intimacy. That doesn't mean God doesn't solve problems. I did not say that. It doesn't mean that God doesn't rescue us. I didn't say that. But you must understand that the reason that was there for is so that we could have a solution, excuse me, a relationship, and not just a solution. Second reason I don't think we as a people have a relationship to God is we feel more than we think. We live in a generation of feelers. How do you feel about it? Do you feel good? And we run around throwing our life against the walls on feeling rather than thinking. How ought you to live is the question. If I told you it was cold outside, would you go outside naked? If I told you it was hot, would you put on an overcoat? If I told you this glass had poison, would you come drink it? If I gave you an inside deal on a stock that you know is a shoe would you not buy it? If I told you I had AIDS, would you have a homosexual relationship with me? How ought you to live? If I told you Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, witnessed by people and ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of God, and he is the creator of all things by his own mouth and by the example of his life, how ought you to live? Not how do you feel? How do you think? Do we think? We're fuzzy thinkers. Television has trained you to think in five-second bites. They're killing your brains, guys. I had a guy with a midlife crisis I was chatting with. 
I don't know why I said midlife crisis. He was just struggling. He just had to be around 40, so he said midlife crisis. <laughs> and I was talking to him. And I asked him a question. I said, when's the last time, what's the last book you read? I'm just talking to him. And some of the good popular stuff that's out, but I began to ask him, what are your reading habits? And they're not a. When he came out of college, he said, that's it. Got it learned. No more. Brain's there. We got it made. Let's go make money, fame, fortune, and I'll be on my way. Guys, Walt fundamentally said to you the other day, your spiritual accountability is a function of the intellect you have. What are you doing to manage your brain and maintain it? It is the temple that God's operating through. And so in the lure of thinking today, society is teaching us to feel. Let's feel good about it. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for feeling. But sometimes I feel like garbage, and I still got to get out of bed, dust myself off, and say, you're God, you're in control. Now, I've been shot at and hit about ten times. Can we get through one more day? The issue is thinking, not how I feel. And you're not going to know the intimacy of God unless you begin to think about the reality of God. Third, would we rather relate to others than to relate to God? The temple is more attractive than the eternal. We want a solution so I'll feel good today. See, this is where the action is. I want to suggest to you in God's economy, the action is in heaven, not here. This is the preliminary rounds, guys. We're not even in round one yet. We relate to others more than we relate to God. We're not sure we really need God. Now, God, let me tell you what. Now, you got heaven, and you got me over there. We got that made. Thanks, Jesus, for that. Now, God, if you just won't clutter this thing up, I'll make a successful business and have a wonderful life. I got mine, you got yours. Stay out of the way. How many times I've approached God that way? Excepting when I turn the corner and it ain't going so good on the other side of that corner. I say, wait a minute, God, let's review one thing. <laughs> and fourth reason I don't think we have an intimacy God is we don't relate to Jesus other than at the time of the cross. After he saved us, it's over with. That's enough. Thank you, Jesus. I want to study the intellectual aspects of the Bible. I want to crack the mysteries of the Bible as opposed to relating to God through Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? We abandon our study of the Savior. How then can we know His ways? What have I tried to conclude with you? I want to conclude with you that your culture and your Christianity is fighting against you knowing Jesus. That's the first thing I want you to understand. I think it is mitigating against you getting close to God. That your culture and your Christianity is mitigating against you having a re an intimate relationship with God. Mm -hmm. The Christian circles that are influencing you, TJ, is what I'm trying to say. Secondly, I think your perspective of why God has done what he's done is wrong. I still think we think of him as a solution God. I would also suggest to you, TJ, your habits are mitigating against him. Your thought habits. 
just the way you discipline and manage your mind. And though I would say to you the intimacy lies within your grasp, I would say to you that it is difficult because it's hard to keep our focus on the eternal as opposed to the temporal. How, therefore, do we know Jesus? And let me suggest a scripture. Let's turn to Isaiah 6, chapter 6. One through eight. And this chat, this verse is used a great deal. It is when Isaiah is confronted with God. Now we're talking about intimacy. Isaiah chapter six. That your Christianity and your habits and basically, uh, I can't remember what that is, is mitigating against your getting uh, close to God. Somebody help me with number two. I don't give me a cue on what number two. Beg your pardon? I'm sorry, what's your? Yes. Our perspective on God's actions are wrong. Chapter 6, Isaiah chapter 6. What are we talking about? Let's understand what we're dealing with, guy. Hezekiah, who is a, uh, I mean, Uzziah, who is one of the great kings of Israel, has just died. <coughs> Isaiah was a, he was a good king. He didn't make it. He's the guy that got leprosy at the end. <coughs> now, Isaiah is a prophet across three kings. Interesting guy. More prophecy about Jesus comes out of Isaiah than any of the other prophets. So he's a great guy to study. I want you, I want to take these eight verses and I want to see how did Isaiah get to know the ways of God. Now he's brought into the court of God. In that year, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And two he flew. And one cried to another said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. <coughs> and the posts of the doors were shaken and the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. Now, Isaiah has painted to you in Hebrew verbiage the greatness of God. And I won't go and tell you all the little tricks like three holies in a row is hyper-holy, but there's all kinds of phraseology and Hebrewism in there that really trips off that this is an incredible picture of God. Verse 5, So I said, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah's response, I am undone. I am broken. I am not worthy of being in this room. I'm unclean. What am I doing here? Sixth, 
Then one of the seraphims flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom will go with go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. That verse, that scriptural verse has a lot of Excuse me here. I'm going to move a little bit on you. That scriptural verse has a lot of import to it. And I'm going to come back and draw some conclusions for you, but let me, let me just re- review with you as I begin my study. What are the things, what are the ways I have used to know God's ways over the years? One of the ways was study of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes had great impact on me as I pursued that. And I want to say to you, a study of the Beatitudes in depth and dealing with the Beatitudes are really a great way to approach understanding the ways of God. Now, those are great verses in there, and they're worth you camping on. I also talked to some guys about what they would say, and some of them said to me, practicing the presence of God, pray without ceasing. All of these are great antidotes we have had in knowing the ways of God. And I suggest all of them to you. I'd encourage you to look at those and practice those habits. And the one that Ford gave us yesterday about filling ourselves with God, that are meaningful things to do. And, and further, I can get into the scripture and the things that have always meant a lot for me as I look at is obedience and studying the creation and understanding the Holy Spirit and accepting tribulation. All of these are designed for enhancing your intimacy with God. But let me be so bold as to you to do, look at three things that I think we learn in Isaiah which will take us to understanding the, knows, the ways of God. How do we get to know the ways of God? And let me sum up what Isaiah did. He comes in the presence of God, and he is broken. He has contriteness and repentance. He communicates with God, and God communicates with him. And as God makes a statement, he responds. He applies the word. And I'd like to discuss those three with you, if I may. But I think Isaiah epitomized that if you're going to have a relationship with God, it is first, the precursor is contriteness. Second is communication with God. Here communicating with you and you communicating with Him. And third, responding to that communication. Contriteness and repentance. What does contriteness mean? Contriteness means broken, maimed, beat to pieces. Those are hard words. Sorry, remorseful evaluated against a standard and found wanting. In Isaiah, numbers of verses talk about cleansing of the vessel, the requirement of cleansing of the vessel. Jesus speaks of this. But before we approach God, we must understand contriteness and repentance is keystone in our intimacy with God. Look at your first three Beatitudes. Poor in spirit. Bless those who are mourn in the meek. Now, I've always wondered if those three great challenges were in contradiction to one another. How can I be poor in spirit and have meekness? Because meekness means 
controlled strength. And I want to suggest to you that they lead one to another. That as I am poor in spirit and recognize that I am without anything and that I am depraved, that then as I begin to realize I am nothing before God and that my greatest righteousness is but as filthy rags to God, then and only then can I love Tom on the horizontal. Because now I'm not competing with you. Because, But I understand because I have nothing that is of any value before the Great One. Now I can accept you. And now I can mourn for you and care for you. And from that grows the humility of meekness, controlled strength, which says that I am nothing without God. But listen, guys, but I am everything with Him. That's what that word says, what that word means. The path to self-love, which is what you were talking about today. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy soul and all thy mind. And love thy neighbor as how? As thyself. The path to self-love is through an acceptance of my depravity. The relationship to God is keyed on a recognition of my depravity and my incredible need for Him. And after you come to Jesus, guys, it is just the beginning. It's a continual recognition of my desperate need for God. It's not a one-time swipe and it's over with. It's a continuing understanding of my dependency upon God, not only in material things, but in the spiritual moral fiber of who I am. Contriteness is cornerstone to our relationship to God. Now let me make a comment. This is not flatulation. It is not a punishment on impelled by whipping. It's not beating my back. Contriteness and repentance is a recognition of my worthlessness in content so that you can grasp your great worth in God. It's a difference from flatulation. Flatulation is driving myself by whipping myself. Contriteness is a recognition of my desperation before God. There's a difference there. Now, I've got to tell you, as I did this study and as I've thought about this, that's a component of my life that has gone out of focus for me. And my intimacy and my passion you spoke of is cornerstone on the capacity of understanding my desperate need for God. The path to self-love, guys, is through an acceptance of my depravity. And I can't love another till I love myself properly. The Scripture teaches that. Self-esteem in Christianity starts with a recognition of our depravity. That is the gate to salvation. Self-esteem does not come from achievement, wealth, good children, successful life, careers, weight, dress, or degrees. Self-esteem starts with a recognition of our depravity. It doesn't come from our achievement. And we're taught absolutely the opposite of that. And we relate, God, if you'll only solve this problem, then I'll look good, and then I'll feel good, and then I'll be good. And God says, no, no, recognize you're as dumb. We'll start there. <laughs> if you're going to have an intimacy with God, guys, if you're going to know the ways of God, you must have a dynamic, alive component in your life of contriteness and repentance. 
Self-esteem and worth only comes from God. Any other kind cheats you. Any other teaching, any other teaching is scripturally incorrect. Period. And we're going through a period of saying, teach my teenagers to be self-esteem, and so we'll do it by achievement. Or we'll put them in a win-win deal so they'll look good. And so when they get adults, tell me what they go back to. It's exactly what they trap back to. That's exactly what I trap back to. The minute the pressure goes, the trap's thrown, I go right back to that filth to go feed myself again. And there's a teaching that we must bring to our children and to our family and to those men we deal with that says, accept our dependency on God in contriteness. The opposite is self-worth outside brokenness. And guys, when you go that path, knowing the ways of God is out of your reach. Isaiah first realized, I am undone. Holy mackerel, what am I doing here? Wow! I have unclean lips. He didn't say, wow, what a deal. Look at that chairman. What's a good deal? Look at this deal over here. Boy, I'm really, this is a swinging place, God. He's struck by his sin. Now, guys, I, I don't know where you are, but I've got to leave you with this thought. The thing in my life now is not flatly. I'm not going to say, oh, dig another sin up, God. But a high sensitivity to my need for God in my moral fiber of who I am. That's not only by accountability, but it's my own self-admission before God and my needs. Second is communication. Communication is our preparation and our equipping. If we went through how do we communicate with God, we would rapidly say quiet time and prayer, our thought life, study, meditation, hearing the Word of God. And how does God communicate with me? By the Word, by the Holy Spirit, by creation, walking in the woods, just looking at God. But I want to say to you, all of this, I'm convinced, this is, a, this is a lesson I learned this year, all of this is nothing but a preparation for us to hear from God. Why do I have a quiet time? To learn something? To prepare my heart to hear from God. Why do I memorize a scripture? Oh, it helps me study, etc. But as I run the word through my mind, prepare myself to hear from God. Why do I go into prayer? Besides crying on his shoulder, it is to prepare myself to hear from God. Why does God give me the Word? So that I can hear from God. Why does He give me the Holy Spirit? And we have a lot of imagined reasons we have the Holy Spirit, guys, but if you study the Word, I'll tell you what the Word says you need the Holy Spirit, so you learn about Jesus and hear from God. That's why He gave us the Holy Spirit. Now, we got the Holy Spirit in our Christian concept doing a lot of tricks today, which was never defined in the Bible. But I'll tell you why He came. One thing you can clearly stand on is He came that you and I can hear from God. And why do we hear from God? That we may have a relationship to God. So that we can know His ways. So that we can deal with, with our life. We are a generation of spectators, not thinkers. We would rather spectate. I enjoyed Ford's illustration of the guy that goes to church and underlines and waits for the newest click phrase or stunned with the intellectual view of the Scriptures. 
The Bible is not given to us to make us smarter sinners. The Bible is given to us to change and alter our lives. We are not called to the life of spectating. We're called to a life of participating. To know the ways of God, we need to prepare ourselves to hear God's voice in the clamor of the world. And guys, I want to tell you, that is a 24-hour-a-day struggle with Gail Jackson. How do I prepare myself to hear God in the clamor of the world? Now, Atlanta's big enough that we have freeway problems. And when I drive down the freeway problems, I hate a guy that cuts in front of me. It's hard to hear God's voice when a guy cuts in front of me. And struggling with the business. And struggling with kids from 16 to 25 years of age in my home. And struggling with a mother-in-law in my house. And struggling with business and guys and their problems. And struggling with guys that I have had friendships with and ministry to over these years. In the clamor of the world, how do I hear God? Guys, the reason you have a quiet time, the reason you take time off with God is not to check something off on your calendar, but is to stop and prepare your heart to hear from God. That's why you do it. It's preparation. It's equipping you to doing it. Remember, we think in words, we remember in pictures. How much time do you just meditate? How much time do you just stop everything and say, I'm just going to think about an issue between you and me and God? How much time do you take reading? I'll give you another one. When's the last time you learned a new word? If it is true we think in words and remember in pictures, then why did you terminate the process of equipping yourself to hear from God? Do you have it made? You got all the words in the dictionary done? If you do, then you can stop. But we want to remember in pictures. So we flip through magazines. We watch TV. We go really heighten your awareness. Don't be entertained, guys. Go off and think about it. Winston said the first night that the Bereans were more honorable than the Thessalonians for receiving the word eagerly. They searched the scripture to see if what was said was true. Do you do that? Or do you just get entertained? And if you're going to know the ways of God, guys, you've got to strap it on. And if you're not going to know the ways of God, you ain't going to last the race. Because everything in life takes you down to, can I accept who God is and I'm going to go with it, or am I going to reject Him? All the issues will bring you down there. And I want to tell you, the older I get, the issues just get harsher. Death, breaking down, all of the issues that crush down around you and the mortality of your life. And if God is not real and if He's not tall and big and who He is then you're not going to survive the issue. First, contriteness. Second, communications. And the third is responding. Becoming. We could spend hours talking on this subject. We could spend hours talking on all of those. But let me just give you some thoughts. We are called to act on what we know. Walt said that in so many words the other day. That's not a new revolutionary thought. You're accountable for what you know. Have you ever thought about why Rahab was noted in chapter 11 of Hebrews on one of the great faith people? Who was Rahab? She was a whore. I guess the, the nicer word, she's a harlot. In downtown where? Jericho. 
And she ain't even a Jew. And he notes her in Hebrews 11. As it was pointed out to me, she did a lot with a little knowledge. She made a bold stand with a little knowledge. She heard of the great nation and she made a bold stand for God. She responded to what she knows. Guys, you live in a generation of knowing more about the reality of God in the scripture than any other generation in the history of man. And are you responding? That is the question. Are you doing with what God has given you? Discipleship is the changing of our mindset, not the learning of new habits. Now, getting me wrong, learning new habits are a good deal. But the changing of a life is the changing of the mindset. When I grasp what the truth is, then I respond on it. Application and response is our move towards purity. It is the changing of our mind. What are you doing with the word and the truth you're given? If we're going to know God's ways, guys, we must, we must respond to what we know. John 14, 21 says what? He who has my words and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In the process of obeying the truth, God will reveal himself to you. Application and response is preparation to hearing from God. Now, I don't mean to simplify it for you, but we must respond to the Word of God. If you know the, you know the Word, but you do nothing about it, you're a spectator. If you know the Word and do something about it, you're a participator. If you're going to know the ways of God, you must be a participator. Now, there's lots of ways to knowing the ways of God. But let me be so presumptuous as to give us three to focus on in 1991. And that is, first, our contriteness and our repentance. Second, enhancing our communications with God to prepare ourselves to hear from God. And third, responding to what we hear. And start the process of knowing the ways of God. Guys, it is upstream against your culture. <clears throat> it is upstream against the fund of the basic Christianity you're being taught today. It is upstream and against the drive of your flesh. But it is what God has called you to, an intimate relationship. <clears throat> so let's stop here. And then when, when I come back on, I'm going to talk about Three traits of God that we learn from Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we love you and ask you to be with us for the rest of this time. God, I pray that you'll forgive me for my inadequacy in talking about these issues. And pray, dear God, that you will sort out our hearts and prick our thinking that we will be men that will draw close to you and aggressively call to you, Father, Father. Amen. <laughs> Let me have them. <clears throat> there you are. Thank you. Thank you. I had a number of questions at the break.
Let me only review one of them. I thought I wanted to review back. One question, and I cannot phrase it exactly the way it was said to me, but basically, I feel frustrated. I feel behind the eight ball. I've heard about becoming more involved in the Word, and yet I struggle on achieving that. And let me make a let me make a comment about that. Uh, I, w- I was uh, very fortunate when I came to Christ. Uh, that God put Walt Henderson in my way, and that was an incredible uh, divine appointment by God, and that really helped me. And God gave me some other men in my life that I really resonated with, and I was able to begin the growth of my life in the Word. Now, I'm going to make a couple observations. Walt is an incredible prophet of his time. Uh, Ford Madison, incredible man to be around, Winston Park. But we, all three of them have a different tempo and temperament and approach to the Word. They can go with given different intensities. We are all wired together differently. And, but what we've got to do is come to grips with who we are and how do we best approach the Word and how do we begin this process to become a man of the Word. We're not all going to be Walt Hendersons and all God's children said amen. <laughs> and by the same token, we ain't all going to be Lynn Littles either in God's children. <laughs> Amen, amen, right, amen, 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 amen. Hey, let's sing a song, TJ. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The truth I want to get across to you is, one of the hardest things I have to teach my children, and I want to teach you now, is to accept who you are before God. And live with what God gave you. Therefore, if you approach the word a given way at a given tempo with a given temperament, then accept that and do with what God has given you. Not all of you can dissect and analyze to the depth Walt does. Not all of you can look at it from the perspective and the worldview that uh, Ford has. Not all of you can look at it from the years that uh, that Bob Foster brings to it. Not all of you can look at it from the experience and the love and the depth that Winston Parker has, but we all have a way to approach the Word. God has equipped us accordingly. And I encourage you to find men around you who will give you an honest appraisal and help you analyze your best way to approach the Word. And then be about the project of doing that. At your temperament, at your tempo, at who you are, not who somebody else is. The only thing I promise you is two or three things. It is a hard journey. It is a long journey. It takes time. And it is a worthwhile journey. Hard, long, and worthwhile. And when should you start? How about today? And I encourage you to do that. Now we've addressed the question of why should we be know the ways of God. It's incredibly important. Jesus enunciates that issue. God so thought it was important that he sent his son that we would get to know him, that we could observe him. It's an incredibly important journey with us. Secondly, we talked about how. And we came to three things to think on, though I didn't think that was an exhaustive review, but keys would be contriteness, communication, and application. I encourage you to ponder on those. Now what I would like to take on is four traits we can know about God by an observation of Jesus' life. And the first one we can arrive at very rapidly. For we who in this room who have come to God through a relationship to Jesus Christ. Let me state without any illustration or development of the argument that a truth about God that we can know is there is that the cornerstone to all of God's strategy 
is Jesus Christ. It was not the nation of Israel. It was not the kingship of David. It was not the prophet Isaiah. It was not Paul's teaching. It was Jesus Christ. It was not America. It wasn't the missionary movement. It's not the evangelical movement. It is Jesus Christ. The centerpiece to all of God's strategy, guys, is Jesus. A hard, one of the hard verses to take down that you'll have other guys take down is, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one can come to the Father except by me. It's a single way you can do it. And the centerpiece of God's strategy is Christ. In business, it's always un- important to understand the strategy. And if you're going to know God's ways, let me, under- let me understand. Well, you should understand that it always has been and always will be with no alterations or changes. Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of that strategy. Everything revolves around Him. And we have a lot to be grateful for and thankful for because the love of God was so great for us that He gave us His only begotten Son. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Guy, that is the first great truth about knowing the ways of God. The second is, I would like to take and review with you the, uh, I'd like to approach it from the miracles of Jesus. Now there's lots of ways we can look at the Bible. There's lots of ways we can study the Bible. But I would like to suggest to you that what I'd like to do is what's called a flyover. Meaning I'm going to kind of stay at enough elevation, kind of looking at the terrain, and I'm going to look for a thread. I'm not going to take a single event and evaluate it, though I'll do that. But what I'm trying to pick out is a thread through Jesus' life. And I'm going to approach it from three different angles. I'm going to take Jesus' life and turn it and see if we can look at given events and pick up truths about Jesus that will tell us about the ways of God. Okay? This is the strategy. It's an overview, a flyover. And the first I would like to... No. <laughs> yes, that's right. What? What teach? I'm sorry. I, I got lost. Okay, the first one was Jesus is the centerpiece. Now I'm getting ready to do number two. And there, are, no, I didn't say three parts. I'm sorry, T.J. Did you hear three parts, T.J.? Is there a voice speaking to you, T.J.? I'm sorry. I may have said that. I didn't mean to do that. I'm going to speak about three more traits of God. I've spoken about one. I'm going to speak about four traits. I've got one, three to go. When you subtract one from four, you have three. The first one I'd like to look at, I'd like to look at from the miracles of Jesus. And let's just look at the miracles of Jesus and see if we can understand them. There was 38 miracles that Jesus performed. And they covered a great range of events. They covered different locations. They covered different people. They covered different times. They covered different things he did. And there were different lessons. But let's look for a single thread across those miracles. And to do that, TJ, I'm going to look at five specific groups of miracles. And now we're now in subset B, subset C, D, E. Yes, sir. First one. The first miracle is Jesus' birth. The miracle was the virgin birth. The miracle was in the city of Bethlehem. The miracle is that he escaped into Egypt after being spoken to by God. Reading the old the, the thing I mentioned earlier about the between the testaments view, the conclusion was the Jewish people felt like it should be a political and military leader. And yet in the face of all of this, Jesus is born in total humility 
Jesus' birth flies in the faith of any of our logic and conjecture. Jesus was born in total humility, in total diametrically opposed to what they thought it should be and could be. The incarnate God was born in a manger. And what God called the fullness of time, the exact perfect moment in all of the history of man. Right on the nose. I don't know that. I would have called that the fullness of time. On retrospect, we can really see that it was an incredible time to have that. God said he was going to be... Why was he born like that? Because God said that's how he'd be born. God said when he'd be born. And God said where he would be born. God is in control of circumstance. And will control it in the best in our best interest. What we can learn is that God is in control and will do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, and how he wants to do it. And Jesus' birth amplifies that circumstance does not define God, but God defines circumstance. We said what we ought to have is a political leader born in the great city of Jerusalem to lead our people. And he was born in a manger and had to run to Egypt by a poor carpenter with a humble mother. The second one is the raising of the dead. I think there are three places that Jesus raised guys from the dead. A couple of children and Lazarus. It's interesting if you review Lazarus raising from the dead, we note that what it provoked from the people was a rebuke and a murder plot against Jesus. Now I've got to tell you, that stumped me. They just saw a stinking body raised from the dead, and what the crowd decided to do was kill Jesus. Now, I never understood why that was second. Excuse me, why that occurred. But let me tell you the question I, that the miracle really leaves me with is this: If life after death is such a good deal, if heaven is better than this earth, then why did he bring Lazarus back, only to die again? Parenthetically, if I was Lazarus, I might have asked the question. What did you do that? I already did it one time. I don't want to go through the dumb thing again. <laughs> Why did he do that? We said, oh, what a great deal. He brought Lazarus back from the dead. I don't know that Lazarus would have agreed with you. If heaven is that much better, why did he bring him back? And I suggest to you why he did it was not for Lazarus' benefit, but to show that he had power over death. It was not a good deal for Lazarus. but to show he had power over death. A cornerstone in your belief today is the resurrection of Christ. Good Friday is not Good Friday without Resurrection Sunday. Our life spins and pivots around the concept of death. And you understand that the older and older you get. As you watch not only people you love grow older, but watch yourself grow older. Death is the great unfathomable question. And yet Christ demonstrated totally before people that he could conquer death. Not only did he raise him from the dead, but he was raised himself. In the 15th chapter of Corinthians, it says that if he was not raised from the dead, above all people, we are be to be pitied. Meaning, your Christianity is for naught if he's not resurrected. Why did he raise them from the dead? Once again, I'd always read it for years. I said, what a great deal Lazarus was redeemed for a few more years. Hezekiah said, give me 15 more years. And the truth of the matter, he's been better off on the other side, and now God pulls him back across the line. To prove that he can defeat death. That's why he pulled him back. 
Third miracle, the healing of the blind man in chapter 9 of the book of John. You recall the incident? The blind man is there and he has his disciples and they go up to him and they ask, why is he blind? Is he blind because of the sin of his parents? And Jesus said, no, he is blind that the works of God should be revealed in him. Let me tell you what he just told you. This man had lived in 30 years of deprivation and struggle. Being a blind man in those days, they didn't have parking places for the handicapped. It was not a good deal to be handicapped. It was a bad deal to be handicapped in old Jerusalem town. For 30 years he lived in this really horrendous condition. And they said, is it because of his sin? And Jesus said, no, because of this exact moment that God can be revealed, you're healed. And that's your moment upon the stage. For 30 years you take all that gruff. And the reason you did is so that Jesus could heal him. I want to tell you, I wouldn't write that script. Why did he do it? And that is to reveal that Jesus was the Son of God. That Jesus may be revealed. This guy went 30 years so Jesus may heal him. Just to prove that Jesus was Jesus. You say, well, the great deal is he healed him. I got another question. Why did you ever impair him? And the reason I impaired him, God said, is because I'm going to show you that that man is my son. And he's going to heal that guy. And it's going to reveal to you guys that this is God you're dealing with. The fourth miracle. The paralytic man by the pool of Bethsaida. And if you study it, you get a feeling and a picture of Jesus going to heal this guy, stepping over the bodies, working his way through the cripples, so he can go over and heal this one guy. He discriminately worked his way through the crowd so he could heal this one guy. Why didn't he heal everybody on the way? Was Jesus here to solve the problem of the sick? You can't conclude that. He did it to reveal before the people that he was the Son of God. Fifth miracles. Walking on the water and the calming of the sea. Why did he walk on the water? Why didn't he walk around the lake? Better yet, why didn't he just get a boat ride? There's boats going across there all the time. Why did he choose to walk on the water? What value did it have? What about the calming of the seas? What value was it to calm the seas? Was he afraid he was going to die? Get serious. He knew he wasn't going to die. He had that deal locked. He was asleep in the bow. He was so shook up. They had to wake him up to come calm the dumb seas. Why did he do it? I always said, what a great deal. He saved the boat. He didn't save the boat. The boat was going to be saved anyway. He knew that. Why did he do it? He didn't need to. He did it to demonstrate who he was. That he showed he had the power over nature. The miracles, guys, are a study in who Jesus is and who sent him. I've always read the miracles in the light of all he did and what a great thing it was for the people. And I want to conclude, that's not what the miracles were. The miracles were God's overt, dramatic demonstration that he is God. 
They are not, they are not a platform to show God's mercy, though he is merciful. They are not a platform to teach us about healing, though he could heal. They are not a platform to demonstrate his compassion, though he's compassionate. What we learn from the, from the miracles is that God is God and he'll do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, where he wants to do it, and how he wants to do it. Not by our script, for our time, and by our wants. Guys, God is God and you aren't. That is the truth that comes out of the miracle. Now that's the first rule of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a method by which you study the Bible. And the first thing you've got to grip, come to grips with, is God is God and you aren't. Otherwise, you'll go absolutely bonkers trying to understand the Bible. Because you cannot come to grips with the truth about Samson, or about the Israeli midwives, or David and the showbread, or the things that Jesus did, or on and on. How do I come to grips with that unless I always understand that God is always right and I never am? You want to know God's ways? Remember, He's always right and you never are. God is God and we aren't. Now guys, that's a fearful thought. That means God's going to come in and do things. He's going to make me blind for 30 years so Joe Schmo, so I can get healed to show that he's God. Who in the world am I dealing with? What am I dealing with here? And I look at Job and I say, what in the world went on? God did it to him. God takes the credit that he did it to him. God uses it to his glory. He gives Job a, an opportunity to question him. And when Job does, all Job does is fall on his face and say, forgive me. God never answered him. Who are we dealing with? This truth can only be dealt with in the light of the Romans 8 chapters, which talk about the truth of the fact is that God is not only in control, but we come to grips with in Romans 8, 28 and 29, that he's not only in control, but that he has our best interest at heart. In Christianity today, we take the reality that we don't fear God. Guys, when I read those miracles, I go, gulp. What am I dealing with? And I'm betting the whole cookies that God is not only God, but that he does have my best interest at heart. Now, the best illustration I've ever heard on this is by C.S. Lewis. And if you ever, who's read the Tales of Narnia? Required reading. If you haven't read it to your kids, you ought to have it read. The last piece of the book on theology I ever understood. They're talking about the children were playing with Aslan, or looking at Aslan, and Aslan was the lion. And Aslan is the illustration of who God is in the book of the Tales of Narnia. Aslan the lion. And they're looking at him, and one child says to the other, Is Aslan tame? And the other child responds, Oh no, Aslan's not tame, but he's a good lion. And guys, that's our God. God is not a tame God, but He's a good God. Should we be standing fear and awe of our God? And the answer is incredibly yes. We cannot deal with the story of Job and say, that's a Santa Claus God. I can't deal with the man in John chapter 9, the blind man for 30 years, and said, boy, he's a really a pancake of a God. See, I want to put God on the level of diplomacy. 
The diplomacy is two equal powers debating to try to get a resolution to a conflict. Let me explain something. This is not two equal powers talking. It's God and me. And I ain't an equal power going into the throne. You want to know the ways of God? It's a fearful, powerful entity that I don't negotiate with who has, out of his own love, declared he is committed to my best interest. The application comes from very easily dealing with my life from the perspective that God is God. He is in control. He'll do what he wants to do, when he wants to do, how he wants to do it. But he's doing it in my best interest. So as I deal with life, I deal with the events in such a fashion, in light of that truth, I then respond. What do the miracles teach us? That God is not tame, but that he's a good God. Do you view God that way? Do you really realize what those things teach us? That God demonstrated his demonstrated who he was through us, and he's going to use you to do the same thing? Knowing God's ways sobers you up in that arena. Secondly, let's take a look. Let's now look at number three. This is number three. Third trait of God. In the 17th chapter of John, we note that Jesus knew he had finished what God had wanted him to do. He says, it is finished. I have finished the work you have asked me to do. Jesus knew his purpose. He knew why he was there. In the three to three and a half years he went about doing his ministry, he understood what it was and what he was about. He moves on foot over hundreds of miles over numerous towns. At one time he has 70 disciples and thousands of followers. And towards the end of his ministry, end of his ministry, he has 10 disciples and diminished crowds that will stay around him. He gets tired. He has hassle. He has obstacles. Yet he seems always to know where he is and he moves through the issue. Jesus demonstrates an incredible mastery of his time. And I want to say one of the great truths about God is understanding God's view of time and His ways. Excuse me, to understand God's ways is understanding God's view of time. Now, the short ministry Jesus had, it was so effective that He affected all of the history of man. His pace, His time, His focus were, is a really, view, really requires our deep consideration. Let me just review some of the random thoughts on time and see if we can draw some conclusions. First, let me say to you, Time Magazine said in, 1990, excuse me, said in January of 1990 that the great commodity of the 90s is going to be time, how we deal with time. That it's going to be how you optimize it. And everything is going to be sold along the line of this is a time saver. I have a friend that works with me. He's 28 years of age. He's got one child, and he's talking to me about how he's crushed in the time situation. And I said, gee, man, at 28, you're not, even into the, you're not even in the battle yet. You don't... You don't have mother-in-laws living with you and teenage kids eating all your food and all of these things, and you're already in the time crunch. The issue of life and the issue of the way we live today, time is a crusher. Is it that God's just giving us less time than we need, than, than He used to give the other guys? Is it the slower pace really made things better? Is it simplicity, what we're really after? Now, point two is in the random thoughts is Jesus seemed to totally grasp the concept of the immediate and the long term 
and God's view of time. It says in the Bible, God says that a thousand years is but a day. Now, if that is true, my mother died three years ago, then my mother would be one day old in heaven. My dad died 24 years ago, and that would make him 10 days old. Now, of course, that's just a metaphor, what we're talking about, God's view of time. But what it really means is two things. God is not under the constraint of time that we are. And God has defined time for us to work within it. Time is a commodity that only we deal with as earthlings. And God has defined the amount of time that we have on this earth. Jesus understood time was an asset. And he used it accordingly. An asset like our talents or our gifts or our skills or our heritage or even our DNA. But each one, God gives to each one of us a unique allocation of, the, of time. Thus, time was not to be manipulated or optimized or spent, but time was to be invested. It's an asset we must know how to deal with. What is the truth about your time here on earth? Being in college, Brent, or being a young man in business, or being an older man with grandchildren, what is the truth about your time that God teaches us that Jesus understood? And that is that God has given us enough time to do all He wants us to do but not enough time for us to do all we think we want to do. God has given us enough time to do all He wants us to do, but not enough time to do everything we think we want to do. Alright? In three years, Jesus effectively took all the hassles of the universe that was thrown at Him and set a platform for a ministry that has affected you and me today 2,000 years later. What does it teach to us? What does it talk to us about it? Well, if we study Jesus, let me say to you, his life is permeated with three things I believe that I see in his dealing with times. One, he prepared consistently for what he was doing. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, stop that. Back up. Point one. Point A, TJ. He, pre he prayed consistently, is what I meant to say. He prayed consistently. Two, he prepared and became equipped. And third, he gave time both to work and to leisure. He understood the commodity. Now, my view of time, I try to review mine, and I'm a time nut on how I keep a book, etc., but I always say to myself, I never have enough time. Only if I had 30 hours a day. I never quite to get done everything that needs to get done. Lombardi says, I never lose, I just ran, I run out of time. I can do anything or I can accomplish anything, just give me enough time. I, do all I, I can do all I want to in my life if you just give me a time. And I can plan my way to success, just give me enough time. And I want to say to you guys, those are all lies in the economy of God. They're all lies in the economy of God. Remember, God has given you enough time to do what He wants you to do, but not enough time to do what you want to do. So you've got a choice. I'm going to give that unknown asset to you, and you don't know how big it is. It's bigger than a bread basket, but I don't know how big it is. And here's your choice. I can spend it frivolously, running around, feeding my appetites and my flesh, Bouncing from flower to flower and then get to face God 
as Walt talked about. Or I can understand God's call to me as a person to the better life and to the greater life and begin to understand who am I before God and what is my purpose and begin to use my time and that's what I would call optimization to use my time in the light of what is presented before me. What is that's your choice? It's an asset to be invested. It's not a commodity to be used. Optimization is out of touch here. That's not what the word is. The word is invest. The word is not optimize. The word is invest. It's not manipulated. The word is invest. It's not controlled. It's with this amount of time, what do I do with my life? Now, this could go into a very lengthy conversation. But let me just mention three applications on time. First is in your time schedule, if you believe, if you see the reality of knowing God's ways, you must build into your schedule the following things. You must build into your schedule the following things. Consistent prayer life. Period. You must build that into your life. Why? If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. And he, being the Son of God, still took time off to go off and pray. Now, guys, I can talk to you about having a day in prayer. I'm talking about having seven minutes in prayer. I'm talking about standing on your head and praying. The technique is not the issue. It's the commitment. What befits you and are you doing anything about it other than saying, I don't know how to have a day in prayer. I just can't go do it. The issue is what are you doing with the light of who you are before God? you understand what I'm saying there? Quit trying to imitate somebody. Be your own person before God and be about it. Second thing that is built in that I saw in Jesus' life is time for meditation and thought. Beg your pardon. Uh, I'm really after meditation more than thought. I think meditation is just a, a chance to simply think and clear up your thinking, and it could be very close to prayer. Three, time for preparation and equipping. Time for preparation and equipping. How much time do you take adding into you so you can have more to give away? How you live today is how you invested your life five years ago. How you will live five years from today is how you invest your life today. That is a true statement. And fourth, enjoy your time. I mean that. All God asks us to do is remember God is God. Right? You should enjoy it. Prayer, meditation, preparation equipment, and simply just enjoying it. Those, I want to tell you, are absolutely must in your life. This year was the roughest year I ever remember living in 53 years. There was no one single crisis that took me down. I did not have a catastrophic death or cancer, etc. I had some bad health. I had business struggles. My kids went through the normal issues that kids go through. I had a mother-in-law living with me. That's about our fourth year, though. Uh, I had no one particular crisis, but I had an incredibly hard year on me, emotionally and spiritually. And I had to deal with it. I won't go into all of it with you, but I want to give you an observation on me. As the pressure mounted, the first thing that went was my prayer life. I used to have prayer, a day in prayer, no less than once a quarter. I had one day in prayer last year. My quiet time shortly followed. 
I was in a Bible study, so I began to discipline myself to get the study done with no thought of a relationship to God in the study. I began to rip at the undergirthing of who I was as a person. I took my mooring away from me. I took my support and my pipeline away from me. I shot holes in my supply system. And then I understand, I couldn't understand why I got frustrated. Guys, I cut the heart out of myself. And so I went through an agonizing, difficult, frustrating, exhausting last six months of last year. And it took the love of my wife and some other people to bring it to my attention. I began to have to slow down and begin to realize that. That I had turned off all the pipelines that fed me. Now, it is true that we only have a little bit of time to live. And it is optimally, is also true that we must establish those lines to feed us during that time so we can use that time effectively. And in looking at Jesus' life, I saw those four things in his life. Secondly, on things we can learn as applications. Remember that hassle defeats and sucks energy out of you. You only have two things to live your life with, and that's time and energy. And hassle destroys it. Beg your pardon. I don't know, what do you want me to repeat? If you tell me, I'll know. Yeah. Hassle sucks energy out of you. Now remember, God is in control and has my best interest. And if that is true, then I want to say to you, a great majority of all my hassles are not hassles, but single events revealing the weakness in myself. Are you with me? That question is a hassle. <laughs> define, define hassle. Driving down the road and somebody cuts in front of me. Phones, uh, phone ringing at the wrong time. Not getting a response to a request I am. Trying to close an order and it gets postponed on me. Mail not getting to me on the right time. My children not responding perfectly as I want to. Any, recognize anything, the guys? Anything that is life? I'm talking about living life in the gutter. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> I want to tell you, though, hassle defeats you. And I want to say to the problem is, guys, it's not hassle, that's life. And it's your view of the event rather than the event itself that's defeating you. If God is in control and has your best interest to heart, that's just part of the cards he dealt you. And learn to live with it and accept it and go on. I must learn to turn the pressure of my life over to God. And I struggled with that last year. Third, refocus, not simplicity. I see a lot of books today that say, make your life simpler. Guys, I may be totally wrong, but I don't think that's possible. Simplicity, basically the ones I read, is running from the reality of life. It is God's course to take me deeper and deeper into the pit of serving you as people. And you too. And the more I serve, the bigger the drain is on my life. Can I deal with it? No. Can I deal with it with God? Yes. The Holy Spirit brings me through those things. The power of God. The reality of who He is. Now my question is, then the way I'm telling you, let me tell you how to simplify your life. Start cutting pieces of your life out. Get rid of your wife and your children. That'll cut a lot of the load down right quick. Right? Just change your job and go live in the beans somewhere. Live in a tree. That'll cut a lot of your... F go live in a small town. Go hide. But that's not what God called us to. God called us to contentment, to self-denial, and to servanthood. It is not simplicity we are after. 
It is refocus is what we're after. To get a new focus on what I am about. To remember my calling before God. Time is of God and from God. And the challenge before us is how do we use what God has given us? He has not given us enough time to do everything we want to do, but He's given us enough time to do everything we need to do. The third, no, excuse me, the fourth lesson, TJ, that we can learn from the reality of who God is, from the life of Jesus, is let's look at the parables and the prophecy. Why did Jesus use parables? So that only his people could understand. Now there was 39 of those parables. And if you study the parables, I want you to note to you, in an overview, that almost all the parables are about the kingdom to come. Not about doctrinal living. It teaches you very little, if anything, about how to live your life. The same is true of Jesus' prophecy. It was to fulfill his multidimensional de deity to show you how he has things planned and to reinforce your faith. Do you know that? That's why he gave you his prophecy. John 2.22 says that after he was crucified, the men remembered that he had said these things and believed on the words Jesus had spoken. The reason God has taken the time to talk about the issues that you and I are living in prophecy is to not only give us hope, but also to, to strengthen our faith because of the fulfillment of these. Through this, he allows us to see and to understand there is a greater life to come. Now guys, how, how many of you read a book and when you got to the end chapter and you read the last chapter you said... Boy, if I'd only known that, I'd understood everything in chapter 10. That's happened to me numerous times. It's always sometimes better to run to the end of the book and read the last chapter so you understand the book better when you go through it. Well, I want to say to you, that's why God gave us the book of Revelation. And that's why he gave us a prophecy. Because he wants you to know how the end times come out. How all of this is going to come out. All the suspense is gone, guys. The ends don't justify the means, and the means don't justify the ends. God's in control of the whole thing, and he wins. And the good news is, we win. It's over with. Fate accompli. We're in the process of living life out to glorify God. That's why we're here. 